Welcome to the Ages Comics of Alaska podcast, where we tell Alaskans what to put in their box at Alaska's comic book shop. I always wished I could do something better than comics, but there didn't seem to be anything. This is the Ages Comics of Alaska podcast, and now your hosts, Lou and Amy Joe. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Lou here from Ages Comics of Alaska, Alaska's comic book shop, and I hope you guys are enjoying your Sunday. If you're listening to this on Monday, hope you're enjoying your workout or your drive to work or wherever you are heading to today. Uh, we have a special guest today, will be uh, Senator Mike Dozer Shower, and uh, I'll be bringing them on here in just a couple of minutes, but uh, I just wanted to... Uh, follow up on some things that we spoke about uh, last episode, and this will be really quick. This is more of a PSA, so uh, let me just cut right to it. Um, A lot of things in terms of domestic violence uh, have been disclosed in in, in the past and trying to get people help on both sides uh, to make people whole. We're going to have a link to uh, resources in the description, as always, but there is something in particular that I wanted to talk about today, and uh, this is for all the dads out there, um, the dads that have daughters out there, and if you would just uh, 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 give me your attention just for a sec, man, Don't, 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 don't click me off just yet. If you could just do me a favor and close your eyes for a sec, and I want you to imagine, uh, Back when you found out that you were having a baby girl and the excitement that you had when you realized you were going to have this baby girl and then fast forward a little bit, you're at that delivery room, you've got that baby girl in your arms, uh, that that smell, remember that smell, that ba- new baby smell, it, it, there's no smell like it on the planet, that innocent smell. You've got this precious thing in your arms, and right there, you, you've made that decision that you'll be damned if anything ever hurts that baby girl. You will protect that baby with your life. It is the greatest gift you've ever received. Fast forward just a little bit. That little baby girl in her pigtails looks up at you for the first time and calls you Dada or Papa or Poppy. And you remember how precious that sound was. And those words meant more to you than any award, any rank, any title. The title that your your baby girl gave you of Papa, Dada, Daddy. Remember how you felt. Fast forward. You remember when they, uh, they, they, painted your nails for the first time or brushed your hair and you would never let your boys know about that but you'd let your baby girl do that because that's your baby girl that's your princess but then one day they uh they grow up on you you don't see it you still see that baby girl when they move out and uh now they're in a relationship and this is where things get a little dark guys all of a sudden, you find out that your baby girl, there's a guy there, punching her repeatedly, strangling her, screaming at her, calling her ugly, fat, 
telling her no one's ever going to believe her. How does that make you feel? What emotions are going through you right now? Are you angry? Are you upset? Are you furious? Alright. I want you to open your eyes now. And now I want you to imagine that person, you've opened your eyes, and that person doing that to your daughter is your favorite hockey coach or your favorite cop or your favorite rodeo star. Does that make it any different? Does that make it any better? Or does that piss you off even more? Guys, we got to be better. For the uh, girls out there, for the daughters out there, we hear you. We believe you. And there's help out there. There are good people out there. There are good people in those communities that do believe in you, do believe you, and will rally the fight for you because they have daughters too. For the guys out there, the perpetrators, this might be your only chance to go get some help. Go get some help. We know PTSD and all kinds of uh, issues, outside issues that could cause stressors, that could cause uh, uh, or contribute to your behavior. But nonetheless, there's no excuse at the end of the day. Go get some assistance. We'll have resources in the description below. All right, let's move on. Uh, I have a special guest today, someone that uh, uh, I have grown to respect as I've gotten to uh, uh, look at his background. And uh, of course, he's a fellow veteran, so of course, I'm going to have some bias. But uh, ladies and gents, let me bring up uh, Senator Mike Shower. How you doing, sir? Good, Lou. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Good to see you today. You're looking healthy. Thank God. Yeah, I know. Feeling all right. Rested. Busy, as usual. Yeah, doing all right. How about you? Oh, hanging in there. Uh, you know, it's, you know, as you know, it's 9-11 uh, today, a solemn day. And, uh, uh, you know, being a military uh, vet, I wanted to get uh, your input on uh, um, where, where were you uh, on 9-11? And I know that you were in, uh, before we do that, let me show people real quick a little bit about you here, of what I know about you. Um Here's that uh, Alex Ross. Uh, that's a famous painting that was commissioned by DC Comics. Uh, Alex Ross drew that up in, uh, to honor the heroes uh, that fell in 9-11. It, it's just a super impactful image. But uh, um, I wanted to bring up... Some people don't know... That, some people know you're a senator, but they don't know that you were an actual... Uh, you were an F-15C and a uh, F-22 pilot. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're right. I did that for 20 years. Holy crap. Um, so, 9-11 happens. Where were you? It's actually deployed to Tyndall Air Force Base. At the time I was teaching at our top down school, we call it weapons school, and I was an instructor there. And we were out at Tyndall with some aircraft with the students doing missile shoots where you do live missile shoots and some other test stuff. And uh, it was the, that Tuesday morning. And we had a mission coming up a few hours later, and I was still in my room. I'd just taken a run, hit the gym, and uh, had some of the guys come up banging at my door. Hey, Dozer, you need to get to. That was my call sign was Dozer, like you said. And you need to get into ops right now. Commander's calling everybody back. You're like, whoa. He's like, turn on the TV. Because I, you know, I was out running. I didn't have a TV on. 
I pulled up the TV. I'm like, uh-oh. I saw that, and it was actually before the second tower was hit. And um, But something, you know, like alarm bells were going off because they obviously had more intel already at that point. And, you know, while I'm watching, getting ready, second tower gets hit. And I immediately got on the phone with my wife before I go, get the kids right now. I said, get them. Just stay home until we figure out what the heck's going on today. I said, I don't know how, how big this gets, right? And uh, that's what I remember. And then it was immediately into the squadron. And, of course, they were already downloading jets and putting missiles up. And they were doing the whole thing because they were going to start using everybody for airborne caps. You know, day late and a dollar short. But that's where I was. And that's what I remember of the entire event. So, And then two days later, we came home. And you'll you'll understand this. When we came home, we flew across the country. Took off out of Tyndall. Normally, you got air traffic control. And there's busy. There's aircraft everywhere. But for that week, they had everything shut down. And we took off at a Tyndall as we were climbing up. The guy handed us off immediately to air traffic and choice. said, where are you guys headed? He said, we're going to Las Vegas. He's like, you're clear direct at 40,000 feet. That never happens. He says, there's no traffic. We wow. passed exact six aircraft, and it was three flights of two of fighters that were capping over major cities on the way home. And when we got in the car and drove back to my house, I remember it because Las Vegas is a busy town, 24-7, right? You could sit outside with your neighbors, and we did that night. You could hear a pin drop because there was nothing. There was no car traffic. There was no air traffic. It was downright spooky because everybody was in a state of shock. And you, I mean, I know people remember, but what I couldn't, what haunts me the most out of that was that Las Vegas was like deathly quiet for a couple days, like nothing was happening. Wow. Yeah, it's so funny how many of us have so, so many similar uh, uh, memories. I. Uh, I was at the uh, Pacific Tactical Law Enforcement Team for the Coast Guard uh, at MCRD in San Diego, the Marine Corps Recruit Depot. <clears throat> we go in, and you know, I'm from I'm from Queens, New York, so I used to stare at those towers daily and just take it for granted. You know, you could see them from my rooftop. You could see them on on, you know, when you jump on the J train uh, when I was headed to high school. I remember my elementary elementary school trips were to the towers and. So I remember uh, we're in San Diego and we were we were doing our morning PT because you can't you can't be stationed on a Marine Corps base and not have PT in the morning. Right. And uh, I remember, man, it's super quiet because I don't know if you've been to MCRD, but MCRD is backed yep. up to the San Diego uh, International Airport. Airport. Dead quiet. N- aircraft weren't even idling, and all of a sudden I see the uh, uh, San Diego uh, Harbor Police are. Uh, their SWAT team is running back and forth on the uh, tarmac there. Long story short, I just remember feeling angry and hopeless because we didn't have a mission yet. We were just waiting, waiting for, you know, uh, to figure out uh, essentially who the enemy is. What, what are we supposed to be doing? And I remember for those first I think five or six hours of not having any tasking was driving us all crazy. You know, who, who, who are we going after? Where are we deploying? You know, what are we doing? And then, you know, a short time later, we were doing sea marshalling. And it was, uh, it was crazy to see, uh, you know, we, the sea marshalling was where we went out and we essentially closed up the harbor in San Diego. And uh, they sent us to the U.S.-Mexican border off of uh, San Isidro. And boarding boats that were coming in from uh, from Mexico, and the shock on people's faces—they had no idea. They were out fishing and doing trips, and had no idea that any of these events had occurred. And it was the same reaction off of every ship that we boarded and every uh, boat that we boarded. And it, 
uh, I think it, it affected all of us very similarly in, in, in that regard. Uh, and uh, the one thing that you said that resonates with a lot of us was how quiet it was for that moment where everyone was just kind of like, no one gave a rat's ass about any other concerns at that point. Everyone was just, it was just silence. It was, uh, the wind had been taken out of us. It did. And I remember, uh, well, I know because I found out later, I didn't know, but a guy that I served with was on one of those aircraft and, oh, uh, slit by those guys. So, um, you know, it was kind of even more personal in one sense because I did not know anybody else on the aircraft, but there was actually somebody that I served with in a squadron, um, that was one of those pilots. So, um, in some ways, what they call it, six degrees of separation, everybody on the planet's connected. You know, I was connected yeah. by the first degree of separation um, directly to it that day, as many others were. And friends I knew at the Pentagon, you know, that were there. Um, so it's, for a lot of us, it's very personal. You know, the, yeah. the saying, Let's never forget, never again. Absolutely not. Yeah, it's funny how, uh, uh, well, it's not funny. It's, it's actually, uh, it's a solemn thing today. I know when you look on social media and, and unfortunately because of my uh my new uh business practice i have no choice but to be on social media daily and uh, uh i have to take healthy breaks from it but uh i have friends from every religious belief every political belief and all of them are united today and all of them are posting the same things never forget you know uh they're posting photos of the towers and very similar, uh, very similar feelings. And it, it's funny how everyone is connected when it comes to that. Uh, you know that that was uh, this generation's Pearl Harbor, really. When you think it about it, it was. Right? I mean, I've got friends that are of other um, religious backgrounds too, and other countries, and many allies. And it's not just Americans that have died, and we've lost plenty. Yeah. Uh, no allies have died in this fight too and other countries have been hit by terrorism around the world and it's not just Muslim extremism because most Muslims don't adhere to this there's a small sect but it's still a significant number but we have extremists at home we have them everywhere everywhere you go there's people that do this stuff There's bad, the reality at the end of the day lived to me and I posted that on Facebook last night to you know talk about today just briefly was that when you look at this, um, when you say never forget, right, and, and always remember it, there is evil in this world. And that's what people have to understand. There is evil that walks on this earth. And you have to be prepared, and you have to be prepared to fight it. Um, not just to defend against it, but sometimes to go after it. And people, I think, sometimes stick their heads in the sand, especially here in America, where generally we have law and order. And you know, But you go to other parts, like you and I have seen in the Middle East and other places, people every day, they're wondering if the, you know their house is you know, going to be, you know, um, taken over by somebody. You, you look at young girls in Afghanistan. You know whether they're, you know, how they're going to be treated. Like, you know, more like um, a property than a human being. Sex trafficking. I mean, the stuff that's happening on this planet, brother, is it's it's distressing at times. And then you have the people in law enforcement and military and others that are out there fighting those battles every day. This isn't just about 9/11. It was just a kind of a top end thing that happened. But it's real, and people can't forget that. You can't stick your head in the sand. This is a this will always be around, dealing with people that are, um, they're just bad. And unfortunately, that's that's the fight that's on our hands. Always will be. Amen, brother. And I, I think uh, uh, it's very few that are called to uh, speak up and fight for, for others that can't. So uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for, for taking that oath. And it sounds like you're still keeping that oath as difficult as it is. It sounds to me from what I've been reading... Uh, 
uh, in the articles that uh, you're still kind of at war, just a different type of war. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, what's going on? Uh, uh, you become you go from being a fighter pilot, and correct me if I'm wrong. You also have a combat air experience, correct? I do. Yeah, I was uh, had some time in Iraq that was not that big of a deal to me from my perspective. You know, not like the guys on the ground, the hell they went through. I mean, always felt pretty safe in an aircraft. I just do, I guess. But you know, I had some SAM shutouts and some AAA. That's like yeah, whatever. Um, Kosovo in 1999 that was a little more intense. That's when the, it was called Operation Allied Force, and uh, that was when NATO decided to go after Serbia and had that little. Um, we have all these little wars, right? Like these little proxy wars. Right. Most of the time, people don't even hear about them. We're so engaged everywhere. But that was a one of our proxy wars there. And I always laugh because the day I crossed, I was the first U.S. aircraft to cross into Serbia proper. Before I had a four F-15Cs uh, leading four F-16CJ harm shooters. And we had 10 F-117s and B-2s that we were really escorting to go do their stuff. And um, I remember it because it was the same day that the, the Bill Clinton, um, his sexual excavate trial with Monica, right. Monica Lewinsky, it was the day that that trial started. I'm like, oh, this is no coincidence at all that we're at a war, right? <laughs> Burn everybody's attention away. Um, it was kind of something we joked about, but um, yeah, that night I shot a couple of MiG-29s, um, they had up, and uh, then later on, you know, we get Sam shot at us, and we were there for a few months, so um, right place, right time, as far as being a fighter pilot, you know, not too many aerial engagements these days, like the old days, but, um, uh, you know, did my job like I'm supposed to do, and there were a few others as well, so, um, you know, and then got lucky later to get picked up one of the first eight operational test pilots on the F-22, that was a really cool thing, so, you know, I have a very... Um, lucky, I look at it in some ways, a very blessed career to be able to do some really cool things and uh, some great experiences. You know, not to say that war is great, but from a perspective right. of a fighter pilot, I got to do things that most people only dream of. And, and as the saying goes, better lucky than good. Be the best pilot in the world. If your luck is terrible your, and your timing's terrible, it doesn't matter. And you can be an average pilot and have really good luck and timing and do really well. So I don't know where I sit on that scale, but I got to do some pretty cool things. Oh, that's that is awesome. Uh, I, I do remember uh, uh, you just reminded me of uh, politics and, and, and war sometimes. Uh, uh, it was, remember the Freedom Fries and we were all mad at France because yeah. uh, uh, they wouldn't let us fly through their airspace. I was on board, I was TDY on board a French frigate uh, with my tactical law enforcement team conducting uh, counter-narcotics operations off of the Lesser Antilles while all that was going on. So the whole time you're sitting there with these French commandos that are doing the job with you, and you're like, those aren't my feelings, man. I love French fries. I love. <laughs> We're doing the mission. Those politics have nothing to do with what our operations are on the ground. And the public at large had no idea that while they were doing these protests, we were sitting there doing operations protecting our our, our interests. You know, it, 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 it's just funny how that uh, at our level, uh, we're really not affected by that in some way. Yeah. You know, we, we just get the mission done. We're just part of a team. And yep. it, it, well, you're, those are your brother in arms too. And I've, I've fought with or trained with you know people like you have from all over the world. And yeah. and you get down to the captain and the sergeant, they don't care, right? With no. politics, whatever. You got a job to do. You back That's each right. other up, and it doesn't really matter. And I, it's funny oh. you say France because I remember we used to have to fly some jets from Italy because we were based out of Italy for that particular war and England was our home base and we were flying back and forth and France got so tired of dealing with us that we would literally they would never talk to us so they literally wouldn't even talk to us 
go like 40,000 feet and we would just go direct straight to England. We'd come back and they just literally, they'd stop talking to us and they knew it was us. And we would just fly across without saying a word to them. And it was like, whatever, you know, and the French was kind of, <laughs> everybody has to deal with France. So it was kind of funny. Oh man. So fast forward, you go from that type of combat, that type of operational tempo all of a sudden, you get tapped on the shoulder by uh, Governor Walker, I believe, at the time, to become a lawmaker. What was that like, and what the hell was going on in your head? <laughs> That's the first valid question there of many that you've asked me is, uh, what the heck was I thinking, right? And so, you know, I was flying for FedEx, still am, because right, we're a citizen legislature, which I believe in. I don't think we want to have just retired or just wealthy people or whatever, you know, because I think they start losing touch with the people. I think having citizens that serve in the legislature but also have jobs that they have to go to to survive and be a part of the workforce is important. I think, I think it's a mix. I don't think you want all of any type. I think you want a blend of that. Some people say, well, you know, I'm retired, so I'm a, I would be a better legislator. So, no, actually, I think that's worse, to be quite frank. Um, I think you want to have that experience back and forth. So, or wealthy, you know, you've got some that are wealthy. You go, ah, you don't want a bunch of them either, because if you have professional politicians, look what that gives us in D.C. So, I'm still a citizen legislature, still flying for FedEx. I just balance that back and forth, make it work. And I've been there for a couple of years, and my wife said that, hey, you're getting kind of bored. You know, you should go to some of these meetings. You know, because I'm kind of my brain's always firing off, and so I should be doing things. <clears throat> and I'd show up to like Matsubara assemblies, maybe get my three minutes to speak. You know, I was always the guy in the flannel shirt. And everybody knew me at town halls, whatever. And and it's kind of a funny story, but I'll make the short version of it. In late December of 2017, Michelle broke her leg. Sounds funny, right? That's how mm-hmm. I ended up in the political seat. Strange. Well, we're sitting in January, and we're supposed to be going off to Hawaii for like a week-long vacation. I'll stay here, take the wife somewhere warm in the wintertime, get her out for a bit, right? And because her leg was broken, she couldn't go. And I'm just stir-crazy stir going around the house because I have vacation, but I can't use it. And i got to take care of her. And she's like, go to this meeting. It was out in Willow. Turns out it was the Republican district meeting that we lived in, and I wasn't even a Republican at the time. I was actually undeclared because we were tired of partisan politics. Wow. And at the meeting, this guy named uh, David Eastman introduced himself, who actually turned out to be our district rep. And he's like, you want to get more involved? Dunleavy was there, Senator Sullivan, a bunch of people, but I didn't know what it was. And, he, and I said, sure, yeah, you know, a little bit. And he had me sign a piece of paper to go be a, uh, a just a, a district a precinct lead, right? Just help get out the vote, nothing big. And I said, well, I'm not a Republican. He's like, sign this. So I did and became a Republican again, right? I had been one from 18 <laughs> to like 45. I'd just been, un, you know, uh, undeclared for a couple of years because Michelle and I were kind of miffed at the national politics. It wasn't really state. Anyways. I get a call a couple of weeks later, and there's this, hey, you uh, um, need to come to this meeting because this your Senator Dunleavy has resigned. He's going to run for governor full-time, so we've got to fill that position. So I show up. There's like 100 people in the Nard Center there in Wasilla to, to listen to the, who had put their name in the hat to be appointed by the governor into that seat. And they picked three names and sent them to the governor. Well, while we're sitting there, I didn't know hardly anybody, but a couple people said, hey, Mike, you speak really well. You ought to put your name in the hat. I'm like, oh, sure, I'll throw my name in. There was 11 names in the hat. And I'm like, nobody knew me, so I knew I wouldn't get picked. But I'm like, give me the microphone. I'll ask hard questions. It'd be fun. And so this guy named Tuckerman Babcock comes up. <clears throat> he was the party chair of the whole Alaskan Republican Party at the time. And he goes, hey, uh, Mike, I understand you haven't been a Republican for a year. I explained it real quick. He's like, well, we can't put your name in because you have to be have rules. I'm like, all right. He's like, you're not mad? I'm like, no, I just want the microphone to ask questions. So, anyways, we pick those three names. They fall out over the next couple of weeks. I get a call at eight o'clock, and this is the this is the story right here. So, I get a call at eight o'clock <clears throat> Friday morning. A week or two later, and it's like, um, you know, those guys fell out. Would you be interested in putting your name back in the hat? And I said, Yeah, sure, whatever. I'm thinking it's the same thing. 
<clears throat> and I said, but you said I couldn't do that because I've been a Republican for a year. And he goes, well, kind of like the Pirates of the Caribbean. They're more like guidelines. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you want to put the name, go ahead. I was like, okay. But it wasn't what I thought it was. It turns out they took your resume and they sent it out electronically across the districts. There's two health districts in every Senate district. And he called me at 8 o'clock that night and said, congratulations. I'm going for what? And he's like, oh, you got the most votes. I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, <clears throat> well, we're going to send your name with two others to the governor. I'm like, whoa, 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 dude, I'm a FedEx pilot. I ain't got time for this. I, no. And he's like, stop. <laughs> I'm, I'm panicking here, seriously. And because uh, this was like a 90 degree right in your life, right? You're like, where'd that come from? Right. No plan for this. Never interested in running for office. And uh, he's like, the governor's not going to pick you. It'll be a great experience. Go interview. I'm like, all right, fine. We'll do that. So Michelle and I go there. Monday afternoon, get a call, go down uh, this, you know, a couple days later, and I go interview with uh, Governor Walker upstairs, ask some softball questions on the military guy. Nobody knows my background because I have no record, right? And uh, he calls me at 7 o'clock at night and says, congratulations, I'm going to appoint you. So, Lou, from a Friday morning at 8 o'clock to 7 o'clock on a Monday night, four days later, I get appointed to a Senate seat on Wednesday. I'm being interviewed by the Senate Republicans to see if they'll confirm me. They confirm me on Friday, so one week later, I'm sitting in Juneau getting sworn in. That's my entire political career in a nutshell. That's how it started. Wow. It was a whirlwind. I'm like, so you asked me what happened? I have no idea because it went like that. And, uh, <laughs> next thing you know, I'm sitting in the seat with a little flower on my suit going, oh, my goodness, trying to figure it all out. That's how it started. True story. That's wow. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, that, that, that's a, uh, a new example of break a leg. All right. Yeah, so, <laughs> so. What's it been like? How's the fight been? So, um, being a pretty conservative guy, especially fiscally, you know, patriot, red-blooded American, love my country, you know, those kinds of principles and values, being a Christian, you know, all that stuff, um, kind of guides, you know, where I am. The Constitution to me is very important, the Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence. So, when I get there, I'm, I'm immediately sworn in, you know, on the floor, and I get pulled back in what I call the power players. And it was, I remember it very clearly, like it was yesterday. It was Pete Kelly, Peter Machicki, Kevin Meyer, current Senate governor, and Anna McKinnon. They were like, you know, Senate president, majority of their blah, 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 all these power players. And I'm sitting in the little chair, right, you know, on the table, and they're sitting on the big table. With, all right, Mike, it's great to have you here. You know, we're, you know, you're going to join our caucus. And of course, I was playing kind of dumb for a while. I knew more than I was leading on, but I wanted to get some intel. Because, I mean, this is like a whirlwind happening. Well, you know, if you join the caucus, then, uh, you know, we'll give you a couple of good committee assignments. You'll get a couple of staff, you know, better office. I'm like, that sounds really good. And I said, the true story. I said, what's the catch? Well, what do you mean? I'm like, there's always a catch, right? Well, you've got to vote for the budget. I like, right? I said, what's the budget going to be? And Anna McKinnon, who was one of the finance coaches, she goes, well, we don't know yet. I'm like, well, when are you going to know? It's like, well, we'll know at the end of the session what's going to be some. I actually said this because I can't help my sarcastic side. I said, so you want me to promise you vote for the budget, but I don't know what it is yet. I said, that's like the builder and the banker are telling me what I'm going to pay for a house and what the interest rate is after you build it for me. I'm like, no. And they're like, and Peter Machicki, I will never forget, he pounds on the table and cries, well, when are you going to know? And I'm like, I don't know, Peter, when I have time to think about it. So it was instantly like right from the get-go, I'm like butting heads with these guys and going, this is not what I expected. And over the next week, I kind of sit back and do some research. I talked to a lot of folks, asked questions, and I came back and told the leadership, said, I'm not joining your caucus. So this binding caucus that I found out about where they basically you have to promise your vote on the budget for the next two years, and you have no idea what it's going to be. And then procedural votes, which they can use as a political weapon, which I've discovered over the last five years. So that's this is I, I give all this for the context, Lou, to say it, it ended up being a lot more contentious than I thought and a lot of kind of um, – power players that you know you got to go along to get along or you're going to be fighting those guys and 
I've often found myself sometimes fighting Republicans more than even the Democrats, not to say I'm aligned with them or agree often, but just how they do the play the game. And then Kathy Giesel was the Senate president for, you know, in 2019 and 2020, and she was terrible. I mean, she treated people horribly. She slaughtered us. She took away her, I mean, when we voted the way we thought best in accordance with our statutory duties and the Constitution and what was best for our people in our district, she slaughtered us. She took away our chairmanships and took away our committees and, and took away staff. She cut their pay. I mean, it was horrendous the way they treat people because they want it done the way they want it done. And they use their political power to twist and manipulate and coerce people. It's coercion. It really is. And uh, so it's been this interesting battle because I'm one of those guys like you. I'm like, really? I mean, Peter, come across there. Come across the table. I'm coming across the table. Gee, don't you dare tell me how I'm going to vote. Don't you dare tell me, you know, what I'm going to do, what I think is best. And so I, I'm kind of... Being that military guy in training, I kind of bow up a little bit and go, no, that's not how it works. I'm like, I represent the people in my district and more broadly the people of the state. I'm going to do what I think is best and what I think is right. And you're not going to tell me how I'm going to do that. And you're not going to tell me how I'm going to vote. And if you're going to punish me, a sitting legislator with the same responsibilities as you guys, the same votes, et cetera, and I'm sitting in this office and you're going to punish me for not doing what you want me to do, we got a problem here, folks. Uh, and we do, and that's how Alaska's been doing business for a long time. It's one of it's been one of my crusades, if you will, is to break that binding caucus so that legislators are free to vote always how they believe best. And if you think it is any coincidence that <clears throat> you've gotten the highest PFE ever, and it came out of the Senate, the amendment I put in, because there was no binding caucus and we could all vote that way, you'd be wrong. It is absolutely true that without that binding caucus, you got the biggest PFE because legislators were free to vote how they wanted to. Or they didn't feel like they had to vote a certain way and, and, and lose something, right, be punished for it. So I say all this, Lou, in the context, and I'll shut up there because I was rambling for too far or too long. Oh, no. I said it's been an interesting battle, um, more so than I thought it would be. Um, most of the people, I, I like them, get along with them. If they were your neighbor, you'd be just fine. But politically and the agendas that some people have and then you know how they play the game and twist arms and do stuff has been um, eye-opening at times, frustrating at others. Um, and sometimes I just have to plant the flag and go, fine, I'll die on this hill. We're going to fight over this. And not always, but it is, what was one of the, I forget who said it, Von Clausewitz maybe was one of them. I forget which philosopher or student of war said that he's like, it was politics is war by other means or something to that effect. And it kind of really is. It is a battle. It's a war in its own way without bullets. Um, but it's a war of ideas. It's a war of agendas and narratives and um, trying to enact what you think is best. So it's. It's a fight. It's not that different in its own way from being in the military. So I guess in one sense, for people like you and I that were veterans, in some ways we were trained well um, to go into the political world because you have to be able to assess the battlefield. You have to be able to have a plan and you have to be able to roll on your feet and come up with changes and, and react to what happens and try to do the best you can do to, to, to win the best you can, whatever you think is best for the people in the state. Without losing your identity and losing uh, your core Without values. Without losing your soul. Right. Yes. Yeah. You don't usually sell your soul at once. When you look over the shoulder, you see a trail of broken tears where you gave it up right. a little bit at a time. And I think it's easy to do that in this job. You go, well, if I just, you know, compromise on this one little thing, then, you know, I'll do this and then I'll do that. And the next thing you look back and go, you sold your soul a little at a time. You remember who uh, Trey Gowdy was? Remember, um, he was a, a U.S. congressman from South Carolina a couple of years ago. He retired after eight years. I had a chance to talk to him when I was the very first year in 2018 after being appointed and uh, somebody that knew him put me on the phone. And I asked him, I said, Trey, why are you resigning? You've been there eight years. You're really intelligent. You know, you're, you're clearly the top of your game. And he told me very clearly because I was asking. 
I want to know. So my, one of my biggest concerns is looking in the mirror when I'm done and knowing I did not cross moral, legal, or ethical lines. I did it right. I can look myself in the mirror at the end of the day. Whatever happens, I'm fine if I can do that. He said, yep, Mike, my wife and I had that conversation, and um, we agreed that if I ever started going, well, I'll just compromise a little bit, then I'm done, I'm out. And he said after eight years of beating his head against the wall in D.C., that he was starting to make those little, well, you know, if I just do this thing here, and his wife basically said, psh, psh, smacked him around, said, you're doing it. And he's like, you're right, I'm out. And that's mm. from a guy that is at the national level that was told me right on the phone. He's like, Mike, I was starting to transition after eight years. And, and Lou, I think Lord Acton was correct. He said it. He said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if you stay in these jobs too long, I think it's almost impossible for anybody, but someone maybe of the highest caliber character to be able to do this forever um, and not start having your soul um, be sold at least a little bit, you know, and justify it to try to just, I'm just trying to do the right thing. It's, it can be difficult. There's no question. Well, the fact that you recognize that uh, uh, encourages me that we need to keep you in there just a little bit longer, just a little bit. I know you may not want to sometimes, but just a little bit. Cause uh, uh, I'll tell you that uh, uh, for the troopers, firefighters, airport fire, teachers, nurses, uh, the state employees, municipal employees that were affected by Tier 4, you just shine this spotlight on what happened. Uh, a lot of lawmakers, a lot of legislators had no idea what Tier 4 actually was and what the consequences were. Now, I'm going to give you a personal experience that is based off of pure fact i can i can send your uh, uh your chief of staff copies of the emails from retirement and benefits uh th this is how i uh uh i i can i can tell you that what i'm what i'm saying is fact i was the recruiter for the department of public safety i ran recruitment backgrounds investigations i had to be an expert in tier four but Aside from that, I was the first Tier 4 trooper in the state of Alaska. I ranked number one in my selection process, so that made me the number one hire, which by definition makes me the very first Tier 4 Alaska state trooper in the state. My class was the very first Tier 4 class. And I can tell you that the vast majority of all of us are gone. In my situation... Part of it was I was injured on duty. I was hit by a heroin addict, uh, struck by, by a vehicle, that uh, I suffered multiple injuries. When I was leaving the department, I had to contact retirement and benefits. Retirement and benefits were under the presumption that I was tier three. So they initially told me, hey, here's how it works. For tier one, tier two, and tier three, if you are injured to the point that you are incapacitated or unable to perform the duties anymore, you will be eligible for medical retirement. A medical retirement is you can now start drawing on your uh, retirement for the next 20 years and you will receive medical benefits. That is based off of a defined benefit. I was tier four, which is not a defined benefit. It's a 401k. On, uh, it's a 401k. It's a uh, it's based off of what you invest in your retirement account. So, in my situation, 
I was advised, once she realized, oh my God, you're tier four, I have to undo everything that I just told you. Tier four, you'll be allowed to draw whatever's in that account. And that's it. You're going to need to apply for Medicaid, Medicare, like any other welfare recipient, to receive uh, public assistance for your medical for the remainder of your life. We wish you the best of luck. So I essentially went from Sergeant Alaska State Trooper uh, risking my life to protect the people of Alaska to eligible for welfare overnight. That was my status. That's tier four. So let me put this in a bigger situation for you. Currently for recruitment, you'll find that we are short-staffed throughout the state. Troopers, airport fire, teachers, uh, public, uh, uh, public nurses, DOT employees, Department of Correction employees. All of these people that are on tier four, the way it works is this. So you have a one-year trooper, and I'm going to use the trooper as an example again, in Palmer, goes out to a call in Big Lake. This is a scenario that could happen today, and please, Lord God, don't let this happen, but it can happen. Responds to a domestic violence by themselves because currently in the uh, B detachment, Palmer, Matsu Valley, you can have as little as three troopers patrolling an area the size of West Virginia. Domestic violence call, two troopers. A third domestic violence, uh, uh, a second domestic violence call pops up, a disturbance in Big Lake. Now you got the one trooper heading by himself from Palmer all the way out to Big Lake, gets there. God forbid something happens, gets shot, gets shot in the spine, loses an eye, whatever, must be medically retired. The trooper only has one year on. How much do you think is in that tier four account? Let's be generous. Let's say 20 grand. It's not going to be 20 grand. It's going to be like 10 grand. It's pretty high to me. Yeah, it's going to be like 10 grand in that account. Maybe. That is what that individual needs to live off of for the rest of their life. And they're going to need to go on Medicare or Medicaid because the department is not going to pay for their medical, which is going to have to result in, like in my situation, I had to retain an attorney, and sue the state. And that's how I was able to pay for my medical bills initially. I had to go to, uh, I had to go and file, uh, I had to get an attorney and go after them through workman's comp. All of that, all of that litigation would have been avoidable had there been defined benefits. Tier 4 is one of the worst legislative decisions ever made. And it was made by legislators that had not been educated or informed on all the details but rather we're told caucus you got to do the caucus or if you want to be on that committee or if you want to have a larger uh, uh, funding for your staff you're going to need you're going to need to just sign off on tier four it's going to save us money it's going to save us on retirement benefits they had no idea the costs that it actually does the to get a trooper trained for the first year, I believe is a hundred grand for the first year. Well, I've heard about one hundred seventy-five or so. I've heard right. more than that. But yeah, With the vehicle and everything, yeah. So it's not cheap. What happens when you're going through those guys three, four times a cycle? That starts adding up. That whole budget is gone. 
in the blink of an eye because the money is being lost on guys that come out and realize, holy cow, what a horrible environment to work in in terms of, you know, if something happens, Mama and I are going to have to figure out or Papa and I, because there's obviously uh, there's no gender when it comes to trooper. No one get, cares when, when a trooper or one of these employees shows up. They just see the state flag, you know, the state seal. That's all they see. Um, you are looking at all of a sudden they have to worry about who's going to make the car payment? Who's going to make the house payment? If I get hurt, uh, it was like several years before we received any form of compensation uh, from the state for my injuries. I mean, it, it, that's a long time to be surviving on nothing. So now you have people knowing that there's no there, there, there's no defined benefit. What's the and there's no really uh, care for uh, their well-being. How do they fix that? And I'm going to add something else to you real quick. This is something that's kind of self-destructive within certain agencies. And this is something that no one has ever, ever told a lawmaker before. You're going to be the first lawmaker ever to see this. Here, one sec here. This is a presentation mode. So. Not that one. Not this one. This one right here. This is the legislative contact notification. Department of Public Safety employees shall not speak to their lawmaker or answer questions of their lawmaker without fully disclosing the contents of that conversation to this email address, this DPS uh, legislative contact notification. It's an email list. If... I speak to a lawmaker and not report this. I can be terminated, demoted, or severely disciplined. That doesn't really create an environment where people can speak to their lawmakers. And I don't know if that's even legal that state employees are not allowed to speak to their lawmakers. I have one example that I can't post, but I'll send to your uh, uh, your chief of staff at one point. I have an actual contact from uh it was a uh, he was speaker of the house uh bryce edgman at the time and his 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 staffer contacts me because i was the sergeant for bristol bay and says and there was a concern about something very serious that was going on i can't post it because there's victims names and stuff i'll have to redact it a completely legitimate inquiry on behalf of the people through their lawmaker. Because when people are frustrated, what do we do? If I have an issue with someone, I'm calling you. If I have an issue with the state and the way the state's responding to something, I'm going to call you. And then you are supposed to be my go-between to conduct the inquiry with the state. In that situation, I could take no action other than take his question and then send it via this email to DPS. And let them know what this lawmaker is looking into. Here's the problem with these distribution lists. It, uh, we have another one called the commissioner's notification. And I can, I think I can clear things up with the commissioner's notification. When I was at the Alaska Bureau of Investigation, my supervisor would remind me regularly, Lou, do not put the names of victims 
suspects or intense details in that commissioner notification because we don't know who's on that distribution list and many members of that distribution list are outside of DPS. I found out when I was stationed at headquarters on headquarters staff, some of the people on that distribution list was the chief of staff, the governor, the governor's PIO, and I could go on and on, people in the department of admin. What the fuck do they need to know about a sexual assault or a kid that's been raped? They don't need to know any of that stuff. The legislative contact notification, anything that I speak to you about, the governor would have to know, the chief of his chief of staff, any of his political allies that he decides to add uh, confidentially on this on this list. And of course, the governor, the chief of staff control this distribution because the commissioner serves at the pleasure of the governor. The commissioner answers to the chief of staff. So if the commissioner staff, if the chief of staff says, hey, commissioner, I need you to add Joe Schmo on this distribution list. He or she doesn't have the option of saying no, because they'll just terminate that commissioner and, and bring on somebody else. How do you think something like this hinders communication with someone like you in your position? Well, I mean, that's it's almost, and I know it's not a trick question from you in that sense, but it's almost a trick question or a rhetorical question is maybe a better way to say that. It's chilling because how are you going to have an honest conversation with me as a legislator if there's something you want me to know or see or hear about knowing that it's going to go right to your supervisors and affect your career or give you a dark mark or anything else on that? So, no, of course not. That's stupid. I did not say that. And I don't like that. I'll tell you that right now, because I think that we have a to have a transparent administration, a transparent government, whether it's executive, ju- judicial or, um, you know, the legislative branch, you have to have free flowing communications. Look, I get it. There is a time and a place for sensitive things that you don't want to have public release. I understand you and I being military do. Right. There's a reason right. we have top secret SCI information or secret or secret no foreign. It was called that we don't share with our allies. The reason is, is those things might get people killed. Right? We might give away capabilities. You don't want to have uh, you know, the troopers that are getting ready to do a raid somewhere say, well, we got to tell you know, 30 people in the chain of command because that might leak or it might get out. So, yes, anybody right. with a bit of common sense gets that there are times and places that there are things that are sensitive and you wouldn't want to share a broadcast. But that is a pretty small niche of all the things we do from a government you know, perspective. And the free-flowing of information, having everything else that's basically out there for the public to see, or between agencies or between branches of government, has to be free with that information. Because if we don't, was it really good governance? And I mean, what you just described to me is political cronyism. It's like, oh, we're going to control everything. And troopers aren't going to say anything that we don't release. And they're not going to tell a legislator who, oh, by the way, might have subpoena power to come in and go, whoa, whoa, what's going on over there? I want a subpoena on that. I'm going to call you in front of my committee, and I'm going to find out what's happening. And let me tell you how I've seen that, because I've been trying to get that with the lieutenant governor for some time now on an election report that a former commissioner of the Department of Administration produced that I can't get anything that half the report's redacted, but yet it was something for me that would help me answer questions to do a, a better legislate, legislative job on an election bill I was working on. Well, when I get all three and a half pages of those 18 recommendations, they're all blacked out. Oh, I've asked the Senate president multiple times, can I get a subpoena? That's part of my job as a chairman is to get subpoenas and get information so we can do a better job and govern better. Can't get it. Well, 
what you just described again, Lou, goes back to if you're going to have something like that that's going to chill the ability to talk or make people not want to say anything, that's not good governance, brother. That's that's um, hiding things. That's the ability to control the flow of information. That's the ministry of propaganda right there um, and ultimate control. And I'll tell you one step further. Something I was working on with the uh, um, Commissioner Shibaka at the time was, what, and you know this from the military, I wanted an IG. I want an, an independent inspector general. We don't have it. My question is, Lou, who's watching the watchers? Nobody. Right. Everybody works from the governor on down, political appointee. Do you think the attorney general is a free agent to do the right thing? No, he's not. He works for the governor. He goes off the reservation or does something that makes the governor look bad or might open up a country to find himself in trouble. He's not going to go after those things necessarily. But an independent inspector general, like we had the military that could not be controlled, it's the charter legally to go after any fraud, waste, and abuse or other accusations is something that's very critical. We don't have that in Alaska. What you just described to me is something that would basically prevent anybody from talking to me as a senator or as a house member or anybody else because there's no communication i don't i don't like that that's not uh, that's actually kind of troubling it's, uh, that's going to shut down communication which is exactly wrong, the wrong direction to take well that's how we ended up with tier four uh the uh the union uh psea um nea the problem a lot of times now i don't know as much with nea but with psea sometimes what happens We've seen, you know, that uh, they won't fight for all of the members and they won't represent and speak to the legislature on behalf of all the members. They'll only speak on behalf of certain key memberships. So like uh, the historically disenfranchised that never have a voice with a lawmaker is your airport and fire, your court service officers. There's lawmakers that don't even know that they exist. And it's because a lot of the uh, senior PSEA presidents end up getting promoted afterwards up to ranks of lieutenant, captain, director of Alaska Wildlife Troopers, so on and so forth. And the reason I bring that up is a lot. So the counter argument is going to be, oh, well, they don't let the trooper speak or the DPS employees speak directly to the lawmaker, but they they're allowed to speak to them through their union. Not if your union is not representing you not if your union has displayed a history of not speaking for all the members and just for key members for the for the purpose of self-promotion i have more than enough documentation to support that uh uh, there's even an nda right now that uh uh that just needs a a specific subpoena to bring that to light to show how bad it, it's gotten over the last couple of years. But the reason uh, I I went off camera for a sec is, uh, you know, being military, being deployed in uh, in a combat area, losing people, um, you you decide a long time ago. I'm not going to get bullied and I'm going to fight for what's right. And I'm going to fight for the people that I swore that I, I, that I would protect. And, um, so one of the biggest losses I took, uh, when I was with the department was, uh, uh, the loss of, uh, Scott and Gabe Rich. You know, I keep this with me all the time. Uh, this stays with me all the time. And, um, Scott was like a superhero to all of us. Gabe was just awesome, positive person. And uh, when they died, when they were murdered in Tanana, 
I remember their remains were flown to the uh, uh, to the for autopsy in Anchorage at the medical examiner's office. The day that they were, their remains were going to be flown back to Fairbanks was the day that we had the aviation show at the airport. I had a recruitment booth there for the department. There was no way that I was going to miss the send-off at the airport, so I told the uh, uh, person running the event, I said, listen, you know, I'm in uniform, obviously, I got my Stetson on. Hell, people joked, I used to damn near sleep with that thing on. And I said, hey, listen, I um, <clears throat> I got to go say farewell to Scott and Gabe, I'll be right back. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I go, we do our thing, we say goodbye to Scott and Gabe as they get the remains get flown back to uh, Fairbanks. Or the actual uh, uh, ceremony. When I get back to the airport for the aviation show, my table is covered in flowers and post-its. Just all these love letters and notes. Thank you. We're so sorry. You know, it just, it got me. As I'm sitting there reading these and looking at these flowers that cover up all my recruit recruitment stuff, you know, and I'm just, you know, it's just mixed emotions, right? Uh, then Senator Begich, U.S. Senator Begich, walks up to me. He was at the show. Hey, man, I'm sorry for your loss. If there's anything we can do, blah, blah, blah. And being prior military, I'm always skeptical of lawmakers, but I was so emotional and so angry and so, you know, so heartbroken. I was like, you know what? I'm going to speak my mind. And maybe <laughs> maybe that, that was part of my demise, but I said... Uh, you know what, Senator? There is something you can do. I said, you know, I've had DAs walk up to me and tell me that law enforcement officers are not victims. And they make horrible victims in front of juries. And I have seen troopers literally be shot at. We had two uh, African-American troopers get shot at in uh, Fairbanks. Where the round literally missed the trooper's head. And they declared that a misconduct with weapons. And they dismissed the attempted murder. That's the first charge they dismissed was the attempted murder. And I told the senator that. And the senator looked at me and he said, and at this point it felt sincere. Normally you don't know if they're going to be sincere or not. He looked at me and he had a staff with him and he says, I had the same things happen to me when I was the mayor of Anchorage. And I have been fighting that fight for a long time. I give you my word. I know the Attorney General personally. We will give him a call on Monday. I said, sure, I appreciate it. He says, if you need anything else, you let me know. Okay. I forget about the whole thing. You know, I'm still upset. I'm still mourning loss. I think it was that Monday or Tuesday, uh, then Director Cockrell, uh, Colonel Cockrell, sends this email out. Hey, guys, just letting you know. Update on the trial <clears throat> on this case. Uh, I have received confirmation from the Attorney General. They have assigned Greg Olson, who's one of the senior most badass uh, prosecutors in the state. He's taken lead on this. No deals will be given. There will be no plea agreements. He's going to prosecute it. And then he puts, so please stop calling your lawmakers. <laughs> <laughs> They're handling this. Please stop calling your lawmakers. And uh, this is the first time they're realizing who that was. Because uh, 
Begich, to his credit, never told them who 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 talked to them. He never he never threw me under the bus. I'm Good throwing myself him. under the bus because I I, I I think I have a duty to say that now. But uh, if people know that they're not going to be thrown under the bus, if DPS employees know that they're not going to be thrown under the bus, they they would probably be more willing to talk to the lawmakers. But it would be a lot better if the legislature could somehow get this practice outlawed where uh, uh, the prohibition of employees that are no, uh, more or less whistleblowing and they're trying to do the right thing by reaching out to their lawmakers. You're the only ones that can make true change, affect housing, affect retirement and benefits. You're the only ones that can do that. The department can't do any of that. The department can only be good stewards of what you grant them. And, of course, you guys also have the ability to hold them accountable for misconduct within the department. And I think that's why a lot of people have become much more serious about who they vote for and who they want in office representing them. So, uh, Lou, I did not realize the extent of that. that you know, I, and I've talked to enough troopers and investigators and others over the last five years on just different issues, and they were usually pretty open about it. But what I didn't realize is they were having to report every one of those, and what now you would think about would be the chilling effect of what they would actually say, right? Or did they report everything? Or, you know, just that just that right. makes it very problematic on that free flowing of information. Look, and I understand, I do that if it was something that would be impactful to the department um, or maybe just, what's the right answer I'm looking for? Good, uh, being a good employee, right? If there's something you think you want to inform your boss about, okay, I get that. But at the same time, you know, requiring every conversation or other things, or even if it is leaning towards a whistleblower type issue to put somebody at risk that way. I mean, that's the whole point of having whistleblower statutes. And I've seen it go really south, and people are like, yeah, whatever. I've seen what happens to whistleblowers, right? So, and I'm not naive enough to think, oh, whistleblowers are all—it's all roses and the sun comes out. Mm-hmm. They get early and sometimes really bad, and it didn't seem to matter that there was whistleblower protection. But um, you have to have the ability for people to be able to talk freely about these things, and if you don't, well, that leads us to some pretty dark places. And you can go back throughout history and look at where that goes when people don't speak up. And, you know, we could go from a mass scale things of what happened, you know, in World War II and what happens when people don't speak up, you know, to just the smallest things of somebody that has an individual issue and is, is not allowed to speak up or, you know, is treated poorly. I can tell you there's a couple of cases going right now that involve whistleblowers. And I one that I have struggled with and tried to help him for the last for five years, and I'm not going to say his name, but he shows up all the time in town halls, and I look at him and go, I don't know what else to tell you, partner. I've taken this all the way to the governor, trying mm-hmm. to solve this issue of, of what happened to him and continue to not get resolution. So, um, But anything that would hamper that is not, that's not a step in good governance, in my opinion. I think what happens when in all of these agencies, at one point or another, the guys and gals they look at their badge and they forget. Hell, a lot of them haven't looked at their badge in years. And they forget that at the center of that badge is the seal of Alaska. And above that badge is a banner with their core values of loyalty, integrity, and courage. And that their devotion 
that their oath is not to the department that employs them. It is to the people that we are sworn to protect. The people that are represented by that seal. And that allow us to do what we do. And until people are reminded of that, which is why you have consent decrees going on in a lot of uh, jurisdictions in the lower 48, until something like that happens up here, a lot of times things don't change. Hopefully, uh, you know, I'm one of those whistleblowers, and uh, it has cost me significantly. Uh, we, we're always on the verge of bankruptcy, but guess what? I'm never going to stop whistleblowing. I'm never going to stop speaking the truth and trying to help others and speaking for others. I'll just I'll file bankruptcy. The the state the state's not gonna break my house. The I, I work for the people. I never stopped doing that. I've been I've worn a uniform since I was seventeen and a half years old. I'm fifty two years old now. I know no other service. So they're, well, they're not I mean, changing from, me. From fifteen for me look to include Army ROT junior ROTC in high school. From yeah. fifteen years old until 42 i wore the uniform and you'd kind of say put it back on for the last five years so only and i'm 54 so we're almost same so for most of my life either federally or at state i have served something other or greater than just myself and my family and sometimes and sometimes at great cost you know from time away from family to losing friends to financial impacts i mean it's not small people think oh you know the state senator you know you're just going down there having a big party i'm like no i'm not that's that's a third of every year or more I am missing with my kids and grandkids, my own home, not seeing my wife. You lose income because, you know, you can certainly do far better than your pay as a legislator. It ain't much. Um, but th- that's not the point of serving, other than to say people, I think, sometimes forget that it does come at a cost. It's not just this great thing. There is there is a cost to that service, especially if you're doing it for the right reason. You're not just in it for yourself, right? But of those three words you mentioned, loyalty and uh, integrity and courage, to me the most important one is integrity. Because anybody can have courage if you didn't know it at the right time to get the tyrant going full compliant. Loyalty is good to a point, certainly to your buddy in, a, in that sense in the trench right beside you, right? As you say, no atheists and foxholes. And you're not fighting for God and country when the bullets are flying. You're fighting for each other to survive, right? That's really how it goes. And But it's integrity. Because that trumps everything else. Because if you don't have integrity while you're doing those jobs, then everything else can fall apart. Integrity is the most important one, and it takes me back to the oath you and I took. And officers, and you know this, take a different oath than enlisted in in the United States military. And it's for a reason and a very good one. The officer's oath says that their loyalty, when they take that, is to the Constitution of the United States, right? I take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's not what the enlisted oath says. You will follow the orders of the officers appointed over you. It is a different one. The reason... When you look historically why a U.S. military officer does not swear an oath to the officers or the president appointed over them is because you can have bad people without integrity. And if you do, you are honor-bound to not follow that person. You are honor-bound to actually go the other direction. So that integrity makes so much at the top. I'm kind of glad it's in the middle when you think about it. It's the most important one. Yep. Uh, that If you have officers and law enforcement and military officers, everybody else without integrity, the whole thing fall apart. And you could have some uh, terrible people, but if you have people of the highest caliber and great integrity, they will find a way to make that work because you can rely on them and the other stuff flows from that. So you're, you're touching on some keystone issues that are foundational to an organization and making it, making it work and run. And we both know there's problems with that in our government. There's plenty of people that don't have very much integrity. There's a lot, right? We just don't. So uh, real quick, uh, 
the elections are happening coming up uh in November. Correct? November eighth of the general elections, that's right. So uh polling locations. Alaskans have very little patience on uh polling locations and I witnessed uh several disgruntled Alaskans showing up to uh the polling place that we thought we were supposed to be at and we ended up uh being told this ain't the polling place you're supposed to be you need to go 10 miles that way or you need to go 15 minutes more that way and these are people that are standing in line for a half hour on their lunch break and all of a sudden they're potentially have to drive another 15 20 minutes to another polling location to wait another 30 minutes to an hour to exercise their right to vote uh do you have any idea of what's being done to correct this situation right now in the matsu valley so yeah so then it's happened statewide so every 10 years we have the census and then they have this little game they play a redistricting right Republicans, Democrats, whoever, they all try to redraw the lines to do the, what's in their best interest. Everybody plays that silly game. And so they try to gerrymander those districts to get their best, you know, get the most power they can get. That's how they play politics. And what, unfortunately, a side note of that, a side, you know, impact is that people that have been going to that same polling location for 10 years, all of a sudden it's different. Just like you said, they go there. I've been going here for 10 years. Yeah, but it's not it. Now you, your district is different. And not only is it not the person you thought represented you, but it's actually you have a different polling place, too. And it, you said it could be miles away. My wife, Michelle, worked the polls, has been working them for years. And she's, they turned away. I think she said about, I say turned away. They had to send about a third of the people that came to that polling location, Magadans, down there across the highway in the Matsu um, at that uh, elementary school to a different location. Now, so just so people know this and they've heard it, if that happens to you, you can vote a question ballot. You don't have to leave and go to your other one. That won't get counted at the end of the day. And if you make a mistake, too bad, right? But um, you can, at least if you're time crunch, you can do a question ballot and they'll take it and count it later. But that's been happening to everybody. And the way uh, the Division of Elections is trying to get ahead of that was to send out to everybody a new piece of paper. Um, and here's where I think they went wrong. On that piece of paper that you get that's got your new voting card, that voting card used to have your polling location, so you could look at it in your wallet and go, oh, this is where i got to go. Well, it's not there anymore, partner. Now it's on that sheet of paper, which I guarantee most people probably tossed. Right? That's right. And so now they're having to go on their phone, look it up, or go to that location that they've always gone to for years and go, oh, shoot, it's the wrong one. So it was actually pretty poor on the Division of Elections part. That's been feedback is to fix that ASAP. I don't know that they will get that done before this election cycle is over. It may not happen until the next two-year election cycle, unfortunately. But that was an oversight on their part that was a, a pretty big boo-boo um, when you're in the middle of a new, entirely redrawn state line because that happens every 10 years. They should have done better, and the director of the Division of Elections should have done better because she's been doing this job off and on for two decades. So that was a mistake that hurt a lot of people. And then, of course, the information of people thinking when that happens, they just got to go somewhere else and get mad they don't vote, and they don't. They can do the question ballot. Um, but they're going to have to look it up. And there is no better answer other than hopefully Division of Elections at least getting that information out before the November 8th general elections. So people will know now, here, go here, or send out a letter. They go, your new polling location is X. Like, you know, big highlighted, that's the point of the, of the postcard or the flyer. So um, there's no great answer to it right now other than just informing people because they made that mistake. In the, I say it's a mistake. I think it was conscious, but they didn't think about it, and they should have, bottom line. I would recommend people listening uh, that want to get their vote counted. They need to call their uh, uh, 
like in the Matsu Valley, just call the borough building and ask them, where is my polling place? Give them your name, your current address, and ask them where your polling uh, your polling uh, and, is. And you can do that with Division of Elections. You can call them. You can go on the website, put your stuff in. There's a way to find it as well. So there's multiple avenues. But don't I'll post that link. I'll, I'll post that link uh, uh, in the show notes because uh, you got to get on that now. You want to know now. You don't want to know uh, uh, the day of because you're going to get frustrated. And, and let me tell you one more thing, Lou, that's important if you post it in the notes is make sure people understand. Go in person if you can. You can certainly uh, vote absentee, but this is the big ranked choice election. All of it's going to be ranked choice this time. If you vote via absentee or online ballot and you make a mistake on any of those sections, that vote's going to get tossed and there is no ballot curing. It's not going to happen, which means that you've, you've lost that vote on that one. If you go in person, as my, my wife will tell you, they can give you up to three extra ballots. You get three shots at it. If they, they, they put it in the machine, it goes wrong. You made a mistake. They'll pull it back out. They can't look at the ballot. They go, but you messed this section up. You need to fix it. They'll give you another one. You can do it a third time. So I recommend for people to go at, go early because you can go up to two weeks early when they open. So you can the lines usually aren't bad. We always vote early, and there's you know you get if you go election day, it can get pretty busy. But go early if you can. Vote in person, and I think they have them open even on Saturdays and Sundays at some of the locations, and get it done. And that way, you will guarantee your vote's going to count because you will put it in the machine. If there's a mistake, you get to fix it, and you know that your vote got counted. If you do it via absentee or question ballot uh, the other way. There is no guarantee, and you may never find out unless you call to see if your vote counted. So that's important for people to know as well. All right. Well, the floor is yours. Why should people vote for you? So uh, thank you for that. I appreciate the question. And here's what I think, Lou, is that right now, you know, you look at a guy, because there's only two of us in this race, both Republicans, um, and why would you send me over the other guy, my opponent? So I have over 20 years of military experience operational around the world, all over the place, up to it and including operations officer, squadron commander, joint staff experience, and, and that is diverse military schools and training, operational exercises and work with allies across the world, etc. So I have a I bring a lot, a vast amount of experience into the job with just that alone. On top of that, I've got over a decade of experience in the private sector, both flying as an international airline pilot all over the world and everything that goes that logistical chain. I have over a decade of experience with a small Alaskan business, so a small business up here that does a lot of contracting stuff, oil and gas and military contracts. So I have that side of the experience brought to that table as well. I work on, as a board member for a small um, company down in Southern California that my son owns as, as helping um, mentoring on that side. And then for the last four and a half years, I've been a state senator. So I've actually gotten to the point where I bring that experience to the table. And now I've got seniority. I understand the building, the process, the procedures, the people, how things need to play out, how the bills work, how to make things happen. Um, and I've got staff that's experienced and ready. We know what bills need to happen or bills are ready to go and pre-filed. So I bring all of this to the table to go back and fight for the people of our district and the state, including really seminal issues like election integrity, judicial officer selection, um, balanced Budget Act, um, the spending cap, the PFD, taking care of all those issues. So I'm, the pump is primed and I'm ready to go, right, and hit the ground running and try to get these things done. Or you could pick my opponent, who's been a state employee for 25 years. That's the only thing that he has and no other experience. And so why would you change horses in the middle of a race when your horse is ready to go, primed, experience, has got it all set up, or essentially start with a rookie, a freshman from 
ground zero over again. My point to you is I think that we are ready and primed and I bring the experience to the table that you want to send me back and let us try to finish those things we started. Or if you vote for the other guy, what you're doing is essentially starting over and that's always a tough place to be. And, you know, and I told you very um, frankly, uh, Lou, I'm not interested in doing this forever and being a 20 or 30 year politician. I'd like to go back now and finish what we started with the experience I bring to the table. Let me go back and finish it. And a couple of years from now, you know, I'll probably be ready to look at somebody else to take this job, you know, and do something different. So because um, I believe in term limits and unfortunately we have to do it ourselves. And I think what would be nine years of service after 24 years of federal service is probably enough for my family and me. But I don't think you change your horses in the middle of the race. And that's where we are. And I think it's wise to send me back with that experience and let me try to finish many of these important things um, that our state needs to be done. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'll probably be happy to hand it off a few years down the road. So hopefully that makes sense. Well, thank you very much. That does make a lot of sense. Uh, thank you for your service. I know uh, we, we both uh, have experienced loss. We both have dealt with uh, uh, service members that struggle. But we've also seen uh, uh, the victories that these people can have when they have the support uh, that they deserve. Really appreciate you. I know that you had many other things you could have been doing on this Sunday, and uh, you chose to uh, be a part of this for uh, the last, I think, an hour at this point. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, I, I really appreciate your time and uh, uh, appreciate your honest answering of questions today. Thank you. Lou, I appreciate the offer to come on, and I hope we'll do it again, and I really would. We I know we talked about this in person, but... I would also like to look, especially if I am reelected and go back, there's a ton of things that needs to be done on the veteran side, especially with suicide. We're not even close to where we need to be. And there is a ton of resources. We're not connecting our people to those resources that are available. And we're failing miserably to do right by those veterans that have stepped up to serve. And so I'd love to do more work with you on this one because, it, like you, it is a passion for me. And my oldest son, I told you to say, I'm going to say it, then I'll stop. Um, you know, he served multiple tours in Iraq as a Marine with the one seven, half of his platoon has committed suicide. They didn't die in combat. They've committed suicide since they've been back trying to integrate back in society. That is unacceptable and we have got to do better. So I'd love to work with you on this one and maybe do an entire another podcast on what we can do to help people and those resources. But that's a big deal to me. So anyways, I appreciate the offer coming on brother and look forward to more stuff we can do. We're, you know, moving forward no matter what position I'm sitting in. Thank you, Senator, and uh, we appreciate you. For guys listening, remember, uh, you can support the channel by uh, visiting uh, AegisComicsAlaska.com. That's AegisComicsAlaska.com, where we have swag, we have uh, sponsorships for the upcoming Comic-Con that we're doing. You can also uh, 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 check us out on our Patreon uh, the link for that is in the description. And of course, please feel free to like and subscribe and share this with your friends and family. Guys, we appreciate you and hope that this Sunday is a blessed one for you. And we will talk to you next time. You just listened to the Aegis Comics of Alaska's podcast. Don't forget, new episodes drop every week. For more info about Alaska's comic book shop, visit www.aegiscomicsalaska.com.